We're talking about crazy encounters. What are some of the craziest or most interesting encounters you've had in D&D? I'm talking battle arenas, avalanches. I'm thinking of two specific encounters. One of them is I was playing in the Star Wars Edge of the Empire system. And we were on this, I think it was like a jungle type planet. And I just remember uh, Will was DMing. And he described these these creatures like climbing in the trees that looked like octopuses. Octopi? Octopodes? Oh, Octopodes. I was in that game. Anyways. Yeah, you were oh, there. Whoa, that's rare. Yeah, and I just remember just being terrified because because there was like like seeing an octopus climbing in a tree is just terrifying. Like they're, now they're oh, not in the yeah. water; they're they're just like, and it was it was definitely an interesting encounter. Oh yeah, that was really creepy. I think for me in general, like the best uh, the best encounters I've had have always been either social encounters, but then there's there's really too many to, to count. Like, weird situations where you're at a party and you, like, say something wrong. And, like, you know, the NPC will be like, oh, I didn't know you were from there. And they'll be like, oh, uh, I mean, uh, uh," like, those are my favorites when they're in a social encounter. And they say something, they mess up. And it's not like a die roll where they get, like, a nat one on deception. It's, like, literally the player playing as the character screws up something and it creates this social tension you know, where everyone has their hand on their holster sort of feel. <laughs> I, I, I can stay enough. Yeah. Or as the Mexicans would say, a standard standoff. <laughs> a standard standoff? A st- <laughs> um, okay, so for mine, um, this was in a system that I've only played, I think, four or five times. Blades in the Dark. We've mentioned this before. Um, this Ooh, is kind of a yeah. dark uh, urban fantasy. With a lot of blades? <laughs> and it's very dark. Um, this encounter was really this prolonged um, scene. And what it was was you were infiltrating a dinner party for a really rich and powerful kind of land baron, if I recall. And I think he's a secretly a vampire, probably. Oh, I remember this. And it was just really cool because uh, the, the danger is just kind of, it was very present and it's there. And some of the players were sneaking off to go in and search the rooms for the stuff they came to steal. Um, and the system is written in such a way that it really facilitates just ramping up, ratcheting up the tension. And it, it worked out very well. And then eventually, of course, things exploded and uh, guns were fired and knives were pulled out and it went very wrong, as all good heists should. So that was my most memorable <laughs> encounter. And actually, nice. it's uh, everyone in Blades in the Dark is a, is a kind of rogue, mm-hmm. so I think it works very well. I'll probably mention this one before, but definitely the most interesting character that i've encountered was one of will's creations and Mm. it was a character named allison doggins (laughs) which was literally just a bunch of hot dogs in a mohair sweater (laughs) and brought um, to life yeah with illusionary magic yes i think eventually we ate her because she was just hot dogs yeah that was really kind of gross in a lot of ways i didn't intend it to go that way but <laughs> it was just a wizard who looked like he had a traveling posse of very dangerous friends but it was really just him and a bunch of illusions yeah it was like scarecrows essentially mm-hmm. yeah um and sometimes scarecrows you. are made out of hot dogs <laughs> Welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. 
I'm David. And this is a Dungeons & Dragons podcast, episode 15, Encounter Building. I have a confession. I don't like the term encounter. Okay, here we go. But um, I, so why? I love encounters, but the the term for me, it just makes me think of... Cosmic encounter. When you're playing, like, like let's say you're playing Pokemon, and you're just like wandering around, and then eventually just someone just pops out of a bush like, ha, ah, fight me, kid. Like... <sighs> <laughs> that that's what I think of like when I think of an encounter is a random encounter. A random encounter that is forced upon you. So I I don't necessarily like that because a lot of the time the way that I feel GMs interpret it is like you have to have a certain amount of fights per day. So uh while you're walking along you randomly encounter three alligators and then three owlbears. Owlbears? <laughs> Owl bears. Oh. So a lot of GMs uh use it as like a forced uh fight rather than just an interesting event hmm. in my experience i think the def- right. i mean i think yeah, the Jake, definition is help. is fine like the, the term encounter is literally just a point of conflict and like the three pillars of dungeons and dragons that they've kind of really pushed for 5e is exploration social interactions and combat and so oftentimes it just funnels down into combat when you think of like a, a quick encounter. But I think, I mean, when you think of encounters, that is our job as dungeon masters, like is to come up with encounters, like come up with points of conflict, whether they be exploratory, whether they be social, whether they be combat, they they just need to be points of conflict. And creating these encounters is literally where the dungeon master gets to flex most of his or her muscles you know i i'm okay with the definition of encounter because um it, it encompasses several different things that you can't just say that an encounter is combat or encounter is a social thing we might say interactions but that seems so bland and like non-interesting so yeah i agree with jake that uh if you don't have encounters then you're just having this wide open world and you say to your players go like i haven't planned anything specific and you can go get yourself into trouble and I think some people might like that game, but most people don't. I don't really. Um, so it is up to, uh, you know, your players have a goal, a mission, an objective, and you need to put these speed bumps in between them and that. And uh, hopefully they're interesting. So is it possible to make an encounter without conflict? Like, isn't that the core of what an encounter is? Is it's conflict that you're, in a variety of ways, I don't think pushing so. on the players? <laughs> okay yes Jake. so give me an I example <laughs> wait okay so will agrees david doesn't david give me an example of a non-conflict <laughs> encounter where there's no problem to solve so um let me... <laughs> i knew it you can't because it doesn't exist it's like and then i just walked across the room <laughs> and i sat down and that was my encounter for the day no no so you can so like let's say you're you're traveling in a forest and as you're traveling you notice up ahead there are three owl bears. Sounds like a regular encounter. It sounds like a regular encounter, but because it is. <laughs> but you don't necessarily have to engage them. It's just like a, like when I think of an encounter, it's something like, and now three owl bears are attacking you. This is more of like this is an event that's happening. Like you see owl bears crossing the road. Like what do you do? And it's like, well, yeah, that's still you a challenge. Though. That's still you can try a to fight speed them. bump. That's still like a mm-hmm. conflict, right? Like you have a decision a to make. problem and you choose how to approach it. Yeah, yeah. I think we're on the same page of what an encounter is. I guess is. we are then. Because I'm I'm just... 
Like so, the way my mind is processing it so, is a little yeah. Different. So um, David, if I yeah. may interpret your your mind for a second, yes. Um, because what you're saying, I agree with, in that random encounters with stuff that just is like, oh, uh, like a Japanese RPG. You're walking through the woods, or you're playing mm-hmm. Pokemon, right? And then you get a random encounter, and you're fighting it. You had no choice, but yeah. now you're in a fight. And um, I don't like that for D and D. Um, in the Hot Springs Island hex crawl that I ran, uh, was that this year? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um. Whenever you find a random encounter, because they have tons of them to help simulate the ecosystem of this world, it's not just things to fight. Like sometimes you'll find plants that you can harvest, or, or um, if you do find a creature you can fight, it's always uh, engaged in another activity because the monsters are not waiting around for you to come up so they can fight you. Like they have lives, yeah, uh, or at least yeah. you know, quote unquote, lives on the island. They didn't exist before I rolled it on the table. Um, but yeah, I agree with David. Uh, Force fighting is uh, boring, or or it can be. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think the key to it, an exceptional encounter, is having those three pillars all there. So you see this this encounter, like David said, it could be the owl bears, and you have potentially an exploratory way of getting around it, where you can kind of explore and go around the owl bears. You have the straight up combat where you just kill them. Or potentially you have a social aspect where maybe the druid or the ranger can talk to the owl bears, And so all three of those pillars are present in the encounter. And then you're, you're left, you know, you give it up to the players to decide what to do next. And they can take any of those options and even more. That's interesting. I've never heard of the exploration as being a encounter type. So Jay, can you give me a specific example of what that might look like? So um, I think I've, I've garnered kind of a, a real appreciation for the exploration pillar of the 5th edition D&D, what they're trying to push from running the Tomb of Annihilation when they're on when they're on an island and it's just pure jungle and they can explore and like literally that's how they get around. Like there is no easy roadmap. There are no roads to stay on. There isn't like civilization once they get into the jungle and they're forced to try to figure out and creatively get from place to place. And so, yeah, I think this is by and large the hardest pillar of the the types of encounters. I think this one is the hardest to implement, but I think it can be very rewarding. Um, and I think it's also, it values creativity where if someone wants to try to go around something or even like dig a tunnel under something or try to get to the highest peak so they can see something like all of these different things, there's like, it's almost hard to explain because there's so many options available for exploration that you, Hmm. if you find a creative player, they'll, they'll often do well with this. I don't know if I agree with exploration actually being a type of encounter. I think it's an underlying um, tool used to, build encounters but it's not necessarily one so i present a different sort of a list of categories of encounters you can choose from and i would say it is combat social puzzle and then uh maybe i would put chase in there because chases can be handled differently in dnd chase encounter huh. yes um, I, I don't run them very often but uh there are some interesting rules i think in the dmg actually about how to yeah, handle yeah. um like you could do a, a horse chase where you're like battling on horseback like all kinds of so how is that different than a combat encounter or would that just be a subtype yeah maybe it's a subtype of combat but um as for exploration i think that that is an option given for any of these like you see um let's just say it's a terrain situation right like there's a huge gorge and there's no way to cross Um, it's almost a puzzle mm -hmm. see and um 
and maybe, maybe a puzzle. And maybe yeah. there is um, the one bridge is guarded by some powerful sphinx or something. You got to answer its riddles uh, that are n- notoriously impossible to answer. So you can choose the social route and try to overcome that. You can fight it, or you can um, figure out a way to cross somewhere else, which would be more dangerous. So maybe it's just mm-hmm. those three. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like getting into the types of encounters or the pillars of what encounters are, it all gets a little fuzzy because it's like a Venn diagram where everything kind of overlaps so much that it's almost ridiculous to have separate circles to begin with, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if the types are as important as, like, making good encounters. Yeah, and that's... Uh, mm-hmm. So what makes a good encounter, in your opinion, Jake? Ooh. I think having a variety of outcomes um or not okay not a variety of outcomes having a variety of possibilities a variety of ways to address it Mm. my favorite encounters are ones that you can address by you know sneaking in and stealing something or you can just kill the person that has it or you can convince them to give it to you right those are three options but all of them are viable and all of them can effectively you know achieve the goal but they're all vastly different and so i love having all those options available but oftentimes if you're in a dungeon and there's this big iron golem standing in front of a door it's like okay this is combat you know and there's really no other way around it you can't you can't talk with the golem Mm -hmm. you can't sneak around it it's like okay this is just combat and there's really no creative freedom to try other things Hmm. no i love that i think that having interesting situations where it is really up to the player to decide how they want to go about dealing with this problem or conflict. So they have to get Mm -hmm. this gem. Like, how do they do it? Do they steal it? Do they try to fight people to get it? Do they try to negotiate for it? I think that allowing players to decide what they want to do and give it gives them more agency over the story and how they want to play and it shows more about who your characters are and the decisions that they make so um i have just a great revelation based on what you guys are saying first um jake pointed out that every encounter needs a goal that is very clear that is not just oh you're having a fight right this is a random encounter i made up to stall for time tonight um there's a very (laughs) clear-cut objective and you need to get to it um also the players Mm -hmm. understand their options so, uh, like you're saying, if there's a big golem in your dungeon and you know there's really only one way through this, um, that's very limiting. However, um, I don't think that every problem should be solvable in any way. I think that there's yes, gonna be certain situations where you're going to, like a social approach is much more appropriate um, or even like smarter. And then other times um, it's going to be, you know, one of one or the other. Um, and that brings me to this idea. Um, this is a rule uh I guess a set of rules from fourth edition called skill challenges. And what this is, is a, let's say you are doing a heist or a high speed chase or something. Let's, let's build a scenario for this real fast. I want to just have a variety of skill challenges. So, um, David, yes, give me an exciting event that is happening in a town. So you're having a jousting tournament. Perfect. Um, David or Jake, what is the the goal that is not to win the joust? The side goal of why we're really at this jousting tournament. Uh, you're trying to uh, infiltrate the thieves guild, who you know is meeting there, and you're trying to overhear a conversation oh. as you're watching the joust. Interesting. So the way a skill challenge might work is that you set up 
um, behind the scenes, the, I'm gonna give you the simplest explanation. Let's say you need six successes, like six successful rolls from your players before they get to three failures. And every skill, um, or there can be no repeat skills rolled during this thing. So you might have a player oh, who is I've on a heard horse about this. Yeah. Yes, and you might have a person sneaking around like to overhear the Thieves Guild meeting. You have a person distracting uh, somebody, right? And so you're making all your players choose which skill to roll to overcome this. And I think this can give you a nice creative mix of, uh, and you could even be doing a combat, right? You can run the Joust like a combat encounter, kind of. Um, you could be running um, a social encounter off to the side, but it's all kind of one thing that's happening and you're just cutting around from uh, scene to scene. And uh, I think it's a great way to handle a diversity of uh, Oh, skills. absolutely. Like, I feel like it it's almost requires a cinematographer's eye <laughs> because you kind of, like, are, are cutting between scenes and being like, okay, now we cut to this guy I and he's doing this. Okay, roll. Up. Okay. Yeah, yeah. If they do split up or if not, like, yeah, you can kind of cut between them. And that, that requires kind of a... I don't know, a certain skill of knowing. I mean, you can have everybody together in one. Unfold. You can have everybody in the same area doing something. Let's say they're uh, trying to bust down a reinforced door and there's a horde of zombies or enemies just coming at them. And so you're trying to get mm -hmm. them to get their successes before the, the three failures. Um, and that way you're not having to cut around. But it's a really powerful tool that I'm, I'm sort of disappointed that didn't make it into the official 5e rules. But as we all know, um, rules are meant to be added to in the case of D&D. Or broken, huh? Or bent so, a lot. Uh, <laughs> so, so my question to you guys would be: When you're building encounters, do you have encounters that you just have set that your adventuring party, the, the players that you're DMing for, will just go through and address them how they are, or do you tailor make your encounters for your specific table? Oh, okay. So you're saying, do I have like a, a notebook that's just full of like a hundred pre-made cookie cutter encounters and I throw them out when needed or I customize them as needed, like on the, the night before yeah. after my prep? Yeah. Um, That's a good question. I, I, I don't think I've ever used pre-made encounters. I always make them fresh like pie. Have you, you never mean, like, ran fresh like pie? I, I make them up to be unique for the situation in the game. Oh, okay. That uh, This is weird because I... So I'll have a few set encounters. So let's say I want to tell like a specific story. I'll have like three or four just major plot point encounters or events that I have happen. And then interspersed throughout it, I'll have a bunch of random encounters that are that fit within the story that I'll have made. And I can throw in or take away depending upon if the story needs it or if the players like need it so i'll have like my major plot points and then i'll have a bunch of random encounters that i can throw in if it if it's going slowly or i need to get them back on track or i want to add in more yeah. stuff hmm. yeah i think i think i well let me ask this first to you guys have you guys ever ran a pre-made adventure before or are you guys kind of opposed to that yes no I've, i'm definitely not opposed to that i ran uh probably the last one i ran was the lost minds of fandelver so did did you just not use any of their encounters or did you like edit those encounters? Um, if I recall, I think I just used them out of the book because they're quote unquote balanced for the party, even though. The, the but you said you never use, so you say you always make your, make your encounters yourself though. 
Well, so most of my games that I run, I make up myself. My usage of mm-hmm. pre-made adventures is like, I could probably count on one hand or maybe even two fingers. Um, and when I run a pre-made adventure, I run their encounters. Otherwise, no. Hmm. Yeah, I don't yeah, really I think use I, pre-made adventures, so. I think I use pre-made adventures frequently, but I love just having a skeleton to work with in regards to an encounter. So, like, I'll, I love, you know, going through the Tomb of Annihilation and looking at each room and being like, how can I make this better? Hmm. Or, oh, this puzzle is kind of just stupid and would take a long time. It's gone. And just yeah. edit the tomb as I go along. And so I really, it's a lot of creative effort to build an entire mega dungeon yourself. But it's it's not as hard to have a pre-made thing in front of you that you could just edit and alter and tinker with to make it perfect for your specific party. Hmm. I don't, I don't know if it's that hard to make a dungeon pretty easily. Not a dungeon. He's saying like an encounter. An so encounter. I, if I'm like, following Jake, like it sounds campaign. like you're saying, yeah. Um, so being able to mix and match and remove things, especially like in the, the tomb of Annihilation. Um, like what's it called? Uh, what's, the, what's it called in the adventure, Jake? The actual dungeon? Or the tomb of the, the nine gods. Of, yeah, the nine gods. Um because uh, you you know your players and you know what they're going to like and dislike so you're like oh well this is three puzzles back to back that's not going to work let's take one of these out and replace <laughs> this with maybe um something else yeah because obviously you know best yeah i feel like that that gives it i don't know it gives you a little more leeway um i, I honestly mm-hmm. enjoy reading through older editions uh adventure modules you know, I don't like reading older editions rules. I just like going through the adventure modules and being like, ooh, how can I hack this up and bend it into a good, you know, encounter for my table? You know, it's just giving me more and more fuel uh, for making future encounters. That's really smart. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. If you want to not have to think about making an adventure or a campaign, just taking a pre-made one and altering it to what you think your players would like and what you would like. It's a great strategy. It's not hard to balance encounters. You just kind of, if you, if you're familiar with 5e, you can easily shift the numbers around to make it a more feasible encounter. If it is too high level for your players and it's, it's a simple and easy solution that is generally pretty good. Hmm. So I'm pretty lazy when it comes to creating encounters um, because I don't want to sit down and do the challenge rating calculations. And, um, I did it one time and it took me probably an hour of just writing by hand. So now I go to, I go to donchon.com and he has an encounter builder for 5e and you can generate, I think 50 at a time. So you choose the number of people oh, in your wow. party and their level and then you choose how difficult you want your encounter to be. And I think you can choose your environment type and you just press go and it'll just spit out. Um, more or less balanced encounters for that. And then I just pick my favorite one off of that list and then you go. And then I can find out a reason to justify that group in the game. It, and it takes oh, that's good. 20 seconds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the combat as war versus combat as sport, how do you lean? Which, which side do you lean towards when building an encounter? Are oh. you more focused on the sport aspect of your encounter or the combat as war aspect? Okay, so I'll break it down like this. Um, combat as sport uh, makes it so you're building balanced encounters, or as balanced as you can conceivably get to. Whereas combat is, whereas combat as war is more interested in simulating a believable world. So I could say, uh, oh, you're in the village 
and you go pick a fight with the town guard, and um, I figured you would, so I have only like two other guards come up and you fight them and you have a good time, right? And eventually you overcome them. Whereas if I'm simulating <laughs> yeah. a world, you pick a fight with the guards and they will beat you unconscious and arrest you, and you you had no chance of winning that because you should have known better. <laughs> I also have a, uh, a third one that I came up with just today um, about blending these two together, and that is having this um, open world zones that are simulated but at certain levels so think of like world of warcraft zones where you know that everything in this area is safe for this level and and so on and so forth and so you can choose where you go without risking your life because sometimes it's not fun to be one shot by something so i know for me i generally like to when running 5e i try to run it more combat as war but i'll tend to adjust the stats of the monsters to fit the encounter so if they're fighting Let's say I want to have them fight a mind flare or something. <laughs> I might Crazy. I might tone down the mind flare if they're a really low level, but I really want that mind flare to be there for that encounter for whatever story based reason. And it might still be a challenge, but it will be something that they can kind of overcome just because I like to have uh, a chance of winning. A chance of some chance of winning because I think that one of the one of the big things to do in, in one of the big problems of 5e is that you don't there are some creatures which you just have zero chance of winning at if you're too low of a level <laughs> and always like to have some hope even if it is wait that's a problem uh, of 5e you just said you run like a combat of as war game design wait that's a problem <laughs> of game design no so, that no that's a problem of is, like though? the uh yes and no wait so i'm confused it sound, i thought david was defending combat as sport but it sounds like you're actually a combat as war believer i am a no david said combat as war no david said combat as war hold on hold on let me get this straight you said <laughs> i i like combat as war but then you said some bad guys are too big and too powerful in 5e and that's a flaw of the system because there's no hope <laughs> for a lower level person so uh, david we need to we need you to restart i need to <laughs> Yeah, I need to hear what you Okay, believe. let me... Yeah, because that is objectively wrong. So, I what I like to have in a, in a D&D system is a more compact scale where you can, within reason, like, still be able to fight a dragon if you're level one. Whoa. Not, not necessarily, like, you are going to win the encounter, but, like, there is a but chance a that chance. you could take it down. There's a chance. Okay, so hmm. if I could put it this way. Um, in a true combat is war scenario, the player's a level one, the dragon is a challenge rating 30, let's say. I don't think he actually is, but let's say. Um, and the players go and fight that and they, they die. But David, he would make that dragon just be like a level 10 or maybe even a five. Like it's still probably going to kill them, but it's not definitely going to kill them. Uh, yeah, kind of. That, that, that for... For lack of a better explanation, kind of gets Isn't at that what more I like combat to have. Sport, there is, it seems more sporty. It's I guess it is more sporty then, but hmm. I I but, like to do it for like story reasons. Like let's say you want to have a dragon, yeah. and generally if if the, if you are fighting a dragon at that level, there's going to be a reason why it is so weak and not necessarily going to be. That's true. It's not like a, an elder dragon comes down and and they just somehow can defeat it. It's like yeah. no, a young dragon is encountered in the woods for mm-hmm. a story reason. And and it's probably still gonna eat them. You yeah, lower it. generally I'll have a reason for the stat nerf. Smart. Yeah, and I think I I like combat as sport more 
myself. Um, I've talked about earlier kind of the debate of combat as sport versus combat as war. I kind of thought of a third way, and I'm like, combat as cinema, uh, CAC, which I just call the CAC. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, but... <laughs> combat as cinema? Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so combat as cinema is basically like the rule of cool wins at the end of the day. So if a player goes, you know, I want to do a front flip and then slam down on them with my sword, I'm going to be like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I might even give you advantage. You know, because that that's just, I feel like that's more valuable than a completely realistic world. Like, I play in a much more role-play, improv-heavy game. And the first rule of improv is never say no, always say yes and. And so, you know, when someone does a crazy cool maneuver, like, you as a DM should be like, yes, and this happened. You know, you shouldn't be like, um, I'm sorry, that's unrealistic in my world. You know, like, that. that's just not <laughs> as fun for me. So, so I tend to... S- stick to combat as sport and then kind of a subset of that's like combat as cinema like i want i want everything to be as tense and fun and interesting and so, yeah fun and exciting as it can be it's it's weird but i've been really drawn to like the combat as cinema recently just because i think it's it's fun to play around with having a cinematic uh, style combat where you're not necessarily you shouldn't necessarily win, but you do just because it's more cinematic that you do win. Mm-hmm. So while that is, I, I guess it is more combat as sport. It also, I like mixing the combat as war into the combat as cinema and just kind of having a mix of both of those. So while you are maybe fighting a lich at level one, maybe you do some like really clever move where you have an item that counters his spell and turns it back on him and it kills him. And that and that's more cinematic, but that's harder to do in five e mm-hmm. in a in a strictly sports system. Yeah, I think a perfect, you know, all games are subjective, but I think the truth really does lie in the middle of these. I think blending them and knowing where to blend mm-hmm. them makes a better game. Because like when I was running the Tomb Annihilation game, all my players were going into the jungle, and uh, you know they're having to buy bug spray. And it's like, what? Like, that is that sounds like the most boring, mundane thing. But it's like they're heading into a dangerous, exotic, foreign jungle with, like, giant killer mosquitoes. Like, they, yeah, they're going to need to buy expensive bug spray. And that totally fits into combat as war, is having, like, this believable <laughs> yeah. encounters. But, like, you know, that kind of bookkeeping and that, like, kind of realistic drag on the game makes the game better because it makes it more immersive. And you're like, okay, this is a real scary jungle with real scary mad monkey diseases and stuff that we need to to worry about. And so it kind of brings a little bit of like the more mm. realism, more the realism into it, and it makes it better. But I think balancing between the sport and war of encounters is like what a dungeon master should really become best at. Because that that's like a really yeah. hard skill of like balancing those two really knowing when to fade into more of a simulation as opposed to like just a fun encounter. Um, You're right. It it comes down to a lot of um, finesse and skill over time. Um, Now, Jake, I have a question about your tomb of annihilation experience, Jake, because you're talking about your your players buying bug spray and um, risking disease and all these things. Um, But there's, there's a lot of things because I've been reading through tomb of annihilation as well. And I'm thinking, I don't know how much of this I would, enforce in the game so my question is did you wind up 
doing things in that game that you wouldn't normally have chosen to do and found it to be rewarding or fun in a new and exciting way. Kind of a Absolutely. Question. So, so I mean, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Ch- ching yeah, yeah. Like it is absolutely rewarding to flex your DM muscles in a way. Because if I get lazy, it just turns into kind of an improv night, and like I really have to kind of like commit to a system in order to like, you know, create something new and interesting. So yeah, them going into the jungle and all of these weird kind of things that you don't think about while adventuring, like small injuries and dehydration and mm. getting stuck in the mud yeah. and bug spray yeah, and like like all of these things really added so much to the game that I never would have just improvised into there wow. you know cuz they are kind of cumbersome and they are there's a little more bookkeeping but I think it did make the game more dire and it did make the game better um I think mm. for example uh we just finished that to annihilation game and we're starting a new one that's just going to kind of be a quick a homebrewed game called uh it, so basically the tone is going to be if quentin tarantino directed mad max and so i want it to be a very fun <laughs> oh my bloody gosh. oh i would watch deadly that a lot. game yeah and so for me my games are so sentimental and so dramatic and so you know story driven that like almost you know when there's an encounter i'm like okay this guy's not gonna die to this trap in the tomb you know, like deep down in my core, I'm just like, I'm not going to kill one of my players in a trap right now. That would be pathetic. <laughs> and, and and now I'm looking at that and I'm going, oh, no, does that make me a worse dungeon master? So I'm going, OK, I want to stretch my muscles. And like mm-hmm. I did with the tomb, I stretched myself and it became better. And so with this new campaign, I want it to be deadly and scary and just a bloodbath so i'm telling my players make sure you have extra characters lined up not if when your characters die because it's going to be a post-apocalyptic wasteland and i really want to stretch my dm muscles and be like no be willing no matter how cool or interesting or thematic or cinematic character is like they can die at any time i am that so delighted play this sounds like it's just going to be Game of Thrones. Okay, and every episode's the yes. Red Wedding. Okay, so I speaking of Game of Thrones, I was just trying to figure out a way to put this in here. Um, I think that D and D, when you're playing the way Jake is describing this Tarantino uh, Mad Maxian world, um, when there's real risk that a main character can die, then every encounter becomes life or death. Deadly, and, and it becomes yeah. so much more interesting. It, it, it could be deadly. So when you're watching Game of Thrones. And you're seeing a main character in a fight and you've just seen so many more characters die in the past seasons. And you're like, they might die like in this stupid battle, like under a windmill. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or or they step in a trap and they get an infection because of their broken foot and they just like succumb to monkey sickness and die screaming. And it's like, wow, like yeah. I didn't know like my cool like BA character could just like die randomly like that. I think that's really special. Um, so um, I guess this is a great time to talk about a variant rule I saw um, relating to because um, if the world's that deadly, then you always want to be full health. And I saw a guy online make the medicine skill when you do a sh- uh, short rest. If somebody does a medicine skill over a certain DC on you, then you get to max out some hit dice on your roll. And I thought that was such a clever oh, and very minimal that's a, system. Yeah, that's a that great useful. That's fantastic. Yeah. 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 No, I think going back to your original question, though, I think it's very important for DMs to stretch their muscles because like what you were talking about earlier about exploration and you not seeing really how it's a 
a big part, like a big pillar for me in playing mm-hmm. Tomb of Annihilation. I ha- like exploration was just downright essential. Um, and so mm-hmm. that from now on, because I played that and because I stretched myself and flexed my DM muscles, I'm going to value exploration more from here on out. And so I'm hoping with this new crazy post-apocalyptic campaign that I will value deadly encounters more from here on Mm. out. Hmm. I think that's great. So we talked about having combat as war, combat as cinema, and combat as sport all blended together. What do you think are the most important things to take away from each one of those categories when building an encounter? Hmm. Wow. Okay. That's a good question. So well, what should I'd you, from sp- when, when designing an encounter with all three of those in mind, what are some of the things that you want to take note of each of those categories? Uh, so sport, you're, you're looking for fairness. Um, I think this is where all of the, uh, the CR ratings, I think you yeah, have the challenge ratings and 5e, they're kind of like, okay, we got to get this as fair as we can. I think that's where that comes in. Um, I think believable worlds from combat as war is everything has to be tonally correct. And so if your world does have things like diseases or an estranged wife or uh, civilian casualties, all of those things have to be thrown in to encounters and you can't shy away from them. You have to be willing to like to let some pretty bad things happen. And I think in combat it was war mostly, you have to be willing to run away as a player. You have to see things be like, oh, yeah. crap, we got to get out of here. And that doesn't happen in combat as sport. That's true. Like, um, And I think it's responsible for, or, and I think that's the underlying reason why so many D&D players have never and probably will never run from a combat because they know that it's designed for them to win. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's, I just realized that. Holy crap. Yeah. Like, why would they run when they know the DM is trying to balance it? Oh, that's so weird. And, and like you're saying, oh. Jake... Um, that sense of empowerment or even like just uh, the thrill of, uh, of lethality, um, it changes the way you DM. Because, I mean, I know that I have pulled punches and I have not done the coup de gras to annihilate a player, <laughs> even when a creature absolutely would have just stomped on the cleric's head and moved on oh. to the battle. You know, wow. he should have. Because mm-hmm. it, in combat is war, if you're, I, I say simulating loosely, but all that it means is it's cause and effect. And it's people making decisions for themselves in a way that the DM is not trying to um, influence. Like, I'm not trying to win, but this captain of the guard really would just put you in prison and then starve you to death until you die like, mm-hmm. for months. And that that's why I think combat as cinema, you know, it kind of bridges the gap and it kind of gives a third option. Because yeah. in when you're watching so, something, when you're in a cinema, when you're watching a movie you are basically enjoying it. But at the same time, if something ridiculous happens, you it breaks your immersion and it's not as fun. And so that's why if you're trying to run a more serious game, like Combat as Cinema almost supports war because it's like, oh yeah, if, if this guy didn't crush it, my head when he should have, like, yeah, my immersion's kind of broke. Like this game is a little mm-hmm. more of a mm-hmm. game and less of like a real thing that we're immersed in. Yeah. Yeah, so... um for me, when I when I want to look at all of three of these types to make sure that I have a, a well-rounded encounter, so I'll probably start with the combat of cinema. So what creature would fit best in the story? Mm-hmm. So if you're dealing with undead, 
Maybe you have an undead minotaur that fits in. And then I would go in and ask myself, in a combat as war scenario, why is this minotaur there? Like, where did it come from? Kind of get the, the logical reasoning for it to be placed in the world. And then uh-huh. finally, I will say, how do I balance this and make sure that uh, the encounter is going to either be steer away the players away from fighting this or if they are going to fight this how do i make sure that it is at least a somewhat fair fight yeah so in in a like a 5e system that would be my my method of going through all of these things and making sure that the encounter is balanced one of my most okay so the question was what's the most important between these all three Mm, it was like how do you include them all together to make a for a balanced encounter encounter so I think that um, I'm going to choose option D here. Um, and that is terrain and an environment is so crucial to having really interesting encounters. And I'm very guilty oh, of just yeah. having a flat featureless field and, uh, and there's an enemy <laughs> at one side and there's the party on the other. And then uh, the party wins and it was boring and you just roll dice a lot. And um, so, yeah, and definitely your environment terrain changes everything. Yeah, no, I, I think this is one of the most undervalued parts of encounter making. Uh, because when you're crafting an encounter, you're mostly thinking about enemies and fairness and like, okay, does the challenge rating make sense? Or okay, does could they could they defeat them? Or what ways does the monster have to run? But it's like, if you put a standard, like David was like, we'll say a minotaur attacking a party, and you put that in an active volcano... Like, it changes everything. It (laughs) makes it... And I know you can't insert an active volcano into any encounter you have, but you should always be thinking about the environment. You should think about, is there places for the ranged characters to get into cover? Uh, Are there pitfalls? Are there parts of the environment that could harm either the players or the enemies if they somehow fell into them or were sucked into them? And so... I think looking at the environment is just essential and it's often neglected when you're thinking about an encounter. Hmm. Um, so it's, you, you said a active volcano, but I, I would argue that even fairly mundane terrain features can be really interesting. So let's, let's take our minotaur, our undead minotaur, and let's give him a whole bunch of smaller, maybe goblins, something with ranged attacks. Mm-hmm. And we just put him on the side of the field, the far side, and we have a huge river like a 20 or 30 foot wide river cutting Mm. the uh, battlefield in half. And so now the players have to get over there. And so that's going to change the way the players can even use their skills because the slower Mm -hmm. people having to cross that, they might not even get to engage (laughs) in battle for the first three rounds. And and the fast people and the ranged people, they'll be zipping across in no time. And so um, like Jake's saying, you want to sort of consider things for, for the player characters to do. But also if you just have terrain features you don't necessarily need to think about what they're going to do you just think here's the way the world is like maybe you have a battle that is just surrounded by uh, those huge termite mounds like in africa Mm -hmm. oh you know the ones that are like five feet tall yeah and you just Uh have a battle there and see what happens huh yeah because it logically like if you trust your own minds like you Mm -hmm. know if then logic and improvisation like yeah you don't even have to think about possibilities Mm -hmm. or like writing out hypotheticals it's like no like it's just this cool place where cool things can happen and just trusting mm-hmm. yourself as a dm to see what happens i love that or you have 
even just having like stalactites and stalagmites in your cave, yeah. like let's say they're fighting and they try to knock some of them off from the ceiling to like fall down and kill the enemies. That's a cool interaction that wouldn't have happened if you didn't describe those in your environment. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think um, to me. two, two very easy additions to an environment are one, a chandelier. I think it just provides a very easy way for someone to roll acrobatics and attack something from above or to dodge out of the way and swing on the chandelier out of the way. I like super easy, especially if you're indoors or in a dungeon or in, you know, a, a, a city or something. A chandelier is a great addition. The second one is some sort of explosive, whether it's like a small, like magical orb of destruction or whether it's just a, you know, bottle of fine liquor. Uh, or even hmm. if it's like a big barrel of, you know, some sort of alcohol that could blow up. All of those things add kind of a attention, um, kind of something that could happen where it could, you know, change the situation entirely. And really, I want to reward mm -hmm. the people that listen to my descriptions of rooms. And I want to reward creative people who can use the environment to their advantage. Yeah. So they're almost like Easter eggs, but they I actually aren't because like they should be viewed as like something you can use so i'm like ta just talking about this is making me really want to run a combat encounter on a ship like a, a sailing oh, ship yeah, yeah like a yeah. sailing ship so I'm, I'm just imagining you guys are below decks and there's this guy who you're just trying to fight but as the ship's rocking back and forth some of the barrels fall over and now they become obstacles that the players have to mm. either try to dodge out of the way of or maybe they can use they can push the enemy in front of some of the barrels as that are rolling back and forth mm. um, as they're fighting so just creating a more dynamic environment where it feels more interesting because there are different things that you have to take in account of as you're fighting <laughs> okay i'm gonna ramp that up a little bit and say it is a uh, combat encounter in the belly of a ship during a naval battle oh and so you have um cannonballs ripping <laughs> through the walls um you have maybe the ship is sinking like once you get halfway through the battle and so like oh, you're going okay. up above decks like there's such cool things you can do and all you've done is you've introduced a uh, well, I was going to say realistic, but like a Hollywood <laughs> realistic scene where you just, you know what's going to happen. You Combat is cinema. Happen. And you didn't have to write down anything. You said it takes place on a ship in a battle. Rather than like you guys just start stabbing each other back and forth and having no dynamic nature of the ship. Mm -hmm. Like it's, if you, if you don't incorporate those aspects, it's like why even fight on a ship oh, in the first place? Yeah, it's bone dry. And it, it's got character and, and flavor and... Um, man, we should just write down a so whole many bunch options. Of yeah, things. So as Dave is saying, it's important to uh, at least consider if your encounter is hard, easy, or deadly. Personally, I make all my encounters hard. I'm not interested in having easy because um, I have so little time to play D and D. And when I do play, I have so little time to play D and D. I don't want to waste time fighting five goblins, and you know that's like 45 minutes that that nothing really happened. Yeah. So I'm just going to bring out this big heavy hitter and his minions. And you're going to really fight for your life. And it's going to be great. Mm -hmm. But I don't do deadly because as much as I advocate for... Uh, or ad as much as I advocate combat as war and just really being um, simulationist in a lot of ways, I don't just want to kill people. I don't want them to die. Yeah. Usually. I, I think... Um... In, in a campaign I'm running right now, it's one of my, like, introductory campaigns. It's, like, kind of a my homebrewed Rise of Tiamat. And uh, 
these <laughs> some of my players uh, stumbled upon an island um, and they went there were all these like dead trees sticking out of it um, and then suddenly the island started raising and they realized they were that they were on the back of a massive ancient green dragon and so um, I've done this encounter for I think four different adventuring parties um, and I've had some that were just like oh my we gotta go we gotta go we gotta go and they just sprint away and I'm, I'm me as the DM I'm thinking <sighs> good job uh, I have other ones who are like, oh, can we take this? Um, and then I have others who are just like, I start stabbing in its back. And oh so I basically, gosh. at that point, Your I have to basically... designed for stabbing. <laughs> <laughs> and so but essentially I have to, I think the worst case scenario, I had to look at someone and be like, uh, roll wisdom with advantage. And they roll like a 16. I'm like, yeah, you know that this thing will destroy all of you guys very easily. And so then that person goes, guys, we should run, you know? <laughs> and so like, like bottom line, I think if you do introduce a deadly encounter, I think you should very, very effectively convey how deadly it is. Oh yeah. Foreshadowing. That's kind of, you yeah, must like, foreshadow. You yeah. Like you shouldn't just have like this random troll that has like a weird blunderbuss, uh, you know, gunpowder rifle that he shoots at someone and it just, it completely kills them in one shot you know it's like okay like Mm. that's a deadly encounter but like they weren't expecting that that's not cinematic that's not fun and so yeah deadly encounters you have to be careful with Uh, i always like to warn my players when having a deadly encounter by just showing them easily defeat an enemy that was a challenge for them (gasps) so like let's say they fight they they fought an elbear and it was it was a pretty tough fight and then they go up and they they're just watching this ogre and he just walks up to this owlbear and rips it in half and they're just no. like, well, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't fight this guy. Oh, that's, that's really such. A, I think that's really effective because I think now that I'm looking back, um, I had uh, a campaign I ran where there was like a demon invasion, but all these demons had um, like their their demon lord had crafted gunpowder for the first time so it was the introduction of gunpowder to the world so there's all these demons running around with like primitive muskets <laughs> and uh this this arch mage like one of the head npcs is like okay guys we need to do this we need to do this and suddenly <laughs> his head blows up oh my and god oh my he god. was just he was just shot and like he was killed by like just a random musket ball and like it really set the tone of like okay this game is darker uh and now gunpowder is introduced onto the world stage and it is mm. powerful and so it really did the job of being like like yeah the you need to run these things are are scary and deadly and it will not be a fair fight if you try <laughs> jeez it's like magic missiles for the whole world <laughs> when building encounters uh consider your players resources so think of their remaining health their spell slots um whatever it is that they use in any given battle um i've had or i've heard of this idea of you're going through this layer the the big boss's layer and just before you get to the big boss's layer you have a grand fight with dozens of minions there's a couple of big heavy hitters in there that more or less expend everything the players have just to defeat it and they do defeat it because it was balanced correctly um but then they go into the next room and you have like the pirate king and he's just like one guy maybe he has a little minion and he's a pretty low level threat like he's easy level threat but they have nothing to defeat him and so at this point you've changed the combat rating um just due to the lack of resources that's interesting i like that 
Uh, one of the other things that I like to do is uh, throughout playing your game, you're going to notice your players tend to pick up a certain pattern of fighting enemies. So like, let's say they always have the tank in the front who always initiates and the rogue always sneaks up behind and the wizard always casts this spell and they have a pattern and it gets pretty predictable. So what I like to do is throw in creatures that disrupt the pattern of combat that they Ooh. normally do. So let's say yeah. they're, they, they rely on this magic uh, fireball wand all the time. Well, now they're fighting a beholder that has a no magic zone. So when you shoot the fireball at it, it just dissipates and nothing happens. Oh, so it, and it forces them to adapt. And, and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not only horrifying, but it forces them to adapt and fight in a different way that they normally do. Hmm. And it makes the encounter more interesting because it's engaging them critically. And they're like, well, uh, th this sucks. So how are we going to defeat this guy when we can't use our big fireball wand? Huh. Hmm. Um, and I think spells in general can be used to really put wrinkles into combat. Yes. Uh, There's a post I saw on Reddit today about the anti-life shell spell. And you put that on an enemy who can attack... 15 feet away, like a large creature with reach. And uh, all of a sudden, your melee attackers cannot hurt that boss, that creature. Oh, that's so they so can't good. even get close to it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so smart. Because so often, uh, David, I have had bosses who have been one-shot um, before he even got a chance to react. And uh, yeah, the campaign was just kind of over in one shot. Thanks okay, well, that. okay, that, that leads into another question of... Do how adjustable are you guys with encounters? Um, are you willing to change stats on the fly, or are you like, nope, this is combat as war. This is this is what the encounter is. Good luck. Uh, or do you you know change stuff on the fly? What, what do you guys do? Are you saying like do we balance the game live during play as it's going? Yeah, live balancing. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yes, hmm. I I think that. I, I'm more focused on the, the tone of the game and the flow rather than whether or not this is, a, according to the rules, a balanced encounter. So if I feel like they're blowing through a boss too quickly, I might add a few extra HP just to yep. slow them down. That's crap, David. But it, if <laughs> Wait, I only do it if it I fits the story. Or <laughs> I'll do it the other way. Let's say they're really struggling against a boss or an enemy that they shouldn't. I'll make it easier just because I'm, I'm more focused on the story that is being told than the actual fight and whether or not it is a, it is a, like a, a, a fair duel to the death. Huh? That's, that's interesting how you, dance between i think you kind of hate combat as war david secretly but you won't admit it <laughs> i think he does maybe i do <laughs> it's like his his mouth says yes but his heart says my no. mouth says yes my heart says no <laughs> um so for you know it depends on the tone of the game that i'm going for if i'm playing D D with a bunch of first timers who i'm really trying to get into the hobby um, I'm definitely going to pull punches. I'm going to have the enemy just retreat or flee or they get routed by, you know, the knights show up and save the day. Um, but if I'm really clear up front with my players and I'm saying, look, um, this is a dangerous world and you could die. And so for the last three games I've run, I've said that at the start of the game. And it just frees me to not have to think about that. The problem is, is that um, all, of the, all of the players are better tacticians than I am. And so even though I'm throwing hard encounters at them all the time, 
Um, they just wipe the floor with them. So I need to probably just pick deadly encounters, come to think of it. Yeah, because I think if you – that's something I've noticed with, um, I don't know, over the past few sessions is that you sh- it's better to create deadly encounters and then lower the difficulty as they're playing and as it gets close – you know, as someone goes down, you know, hmm. that's better than having it maybe an easier or like a, just a standard like hard uh, encounter and then upping it as you go along. It's much easier to have a deadly encounter that you lower to even out and meet them in the middle than it is to buff a monster mid fight. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Because like if they're fighting a bunch of goblins and they're like, wow, these guys have like hundreds of hit points. You're like, uh, yeah, <laughs> they're they're tough. And, but if they're fighting like three basilisk <laughs> and you're like, um, yeah, the three of you are stone and two of them just like turn and run away, you know, um, or even they just they forget to do their multi attack or they forget to do the stone gaze. Yeah. Because, th- um, you know, th- I doubt people easy. are paying attention. Yeah. To, to yeah. the amount of actions you're doing or whatever. And so, yeah, I think the easiest way to alter is I don't alter health. Um, mostly I will just give them an extra action um, or make their attack do a little more damage. Um, <laughs> that's pretty much all I do. I don't like to change the health much um, unless, like, someone lands a really cool blow and it leaves them with, like, two health left. I'm like, okay, they die. You know, <laughs> I, I'm not going to make them <laughs> come over to a crippled enemy and slit its throat unless that would be even better. <laughs> well, in the Mad Max uh, world that you're running, maybe they would. Oh, it's going to be a um, point there. Oh, jeez. So as for balancing the game, what is what are some tips for balancing the game, uh, counter-wise? That's Didn't a tough question because... Um, we talked about, like, um, in terms of combat as war and sport and so on. But I'm saying, like, I just want to build an encounter. How do I make sure it's fair? Well... It really depends upon what you would define as fair and what you want out of the encounter. Do you want uh, the the combat to challenge the players? Are you wanting them to feel scared? Like, is it? Do you want them to fear for their life? Do you do you want them to be it to be more cinematic and a more story focused moment in your game? I think those are things that you need to kind of take note of in terms of balancing it to make sure that you're focusing on the right things. If you want a deadly encounter, maybe uh, the the mob or the, the creature that they're fighting is um, a little stronger than he, he normally is mm-hmm. just to get get the, the point across that he, this is a deadly fight. Or maybe you uh, you focus on the, the, the creature having more HP so you're interacting with it for a longer period of time because it has some interesting features about it like the basculus. Mm-hmm. So my life hack um I don't know where Jake went but my life hack is Oh no, I'm here. Action economy is the king of D&D 5e. Um like you could have a boss who is a deadly encounter all by himself and you can have the the heart of the volcano whatever environment you want. But if he only gets one action a turn, he may be one-shotting PCs every turn. But chances are he's going to miss a couple times. And your players will have five turns for every one of his, and he will go down. And and the GM will be scratching his head saying, like, what did I do wrong? Or you could throw 20 goblins at a group of, like, four or five players. And you have 20, um, 20 actions there, five. And even though they're just... Um, really not very accurate and they don't do a lot of damage you can annihilate a, like a fifth level party 
maybe not fifth, like a third level party um, pretty easily just by out turning them. And if you keep that in mind, it'll make it a lot easier to build encounters. Um, if you're going to build a big boss who's just like a solo thing, you definitely have to just beef up their actions. Um, an easy way to do it is you just make them go after every player goes. I'll put the fear into them. Well, I think... I think that in most boss fights, like most legendary creatures, I think 5th edition is, they know this, they're not dumb, the designers, and they've given a lot of layer actions and legendary actions, which are pretty incredible, and yeah. it, it balances out the action economy pretty well. Um, I guess from running some big bosses recently, like, yeah, some of those legendary actions are horrifying, and it's just like, they, they will strike fear into the people that happen to wander into this boss's lair. It is, <laughs> some of them are really great. So yeah, I think actions are kind of king in regards to balance. Like the action economy, like if you want to balance an encounter, give them another action. Yep. Or give them reactions. A lot of times, especially new players, don't really understand what a reaction is. But, you know, just throw in some reactions. You know, if, if one of the best fighters slashes them, have them attack back. I don't think anyone at your table is going to complain and be like, wait, he's taking more actions than he should have taken. You know, like, it, it'll make the fight better. If you know the balance yourself, I think you can do the math well enough in your head to to give an action here or there to the make math. the fight more balanced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Though I would um, encourage DMs to be really consistent with that ruling. Um, don't just have your your villain suddenly gained three more turns for no reason. Um, you, you always have three turns and yeah. you just decide to use them or not. And this way it's not feeling unfair because you don't want your players to feel like you're being combative. Um, Cause obviously if as a GM, if we wanted to kill our players, we just could. But a lot of people I play with, or at least a few of them, um, they actually do get bent out of shape if they feel I'm cheating. Yeah. You know who you, you are. <laughs> what? You do really? need to make sure that you are consistent with, yeah how you run a creature so if they act a certain way they're always going to uh, act act that way or act in a, in a similar manner that makes sense within your world mm -hmm. like um you can just make goblins always call for help like when they get down to a certain number i always call for help and it always brings more goblins and you just so the players know that is a rule in my world and it's gonna happen huh i, I guess that this leads into another rabbit hole of like deep trust in your dungeon master <laughs> Like, like if your dungeon master does something, is like, I'm going to give him an extra attack. What player is going to be like, no. Like, do you think the dungeon master wants you to have a bad time? Like, they're doing this to make you have a better time. Uh, you're right. And Jake, I agree with you. But um, I must reiterate that you have the best players who have ever played D&D. &D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Man, you're right. <laughs> Thanks, guys, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're spoiled to death how has your prep and your process for creating encounters changed oh that's good jake hmm i think for me it has been tailoring my encounters to the specific party um i have i basically have a few campaigns that i have run through with multiple parties to the point where i'm so comfortable that i know what happens next mission i know what happens next session blah 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 like i'm i'm so prepared but i've, I've gotten better at being able to curate those specific environments or encounters to let every player shine you know like if i have mm -hmm. a player that can breathe underwater or has boots of water walking then i'll include a pool of water in the encounter or if i have a mm -hmm 
rogue that's incredibly acrobatic, then I will have uh, maybe strings of lights uh, or, or maybe clotheslines hung over the urban encounter so he can balance on those and walk between rooftops. Just adding little really things good. that that allows each individual player to shine, I think is is just what I have learned to be better at. That is some of the best uh, dungeon master advice I think we've had on this show. Is mm-hmm. Jake is putting his players' enjoyment at the forefront of everything he's considering and doing. Um, I think that I don't do this as much as I should because I don't even look at my players' character sheets half the time because they just have so much crap going on. I don't care. Um, the The main way that I've just changed is the quality of my prep has gone up significantly over time. The more I play, the more I know exactly what I need and, and what I don't. So, for example, I know if I'm going to have this monster, I'm going to need the stats. So I always have the monster that monsters that I'm going to have the party encounter, uh, how they act, what's the environment, and what are their stats. Hmm. And that's pretty much all I have written down. Everything else is either like improv or I have a rough idea in my head of how it's going to play out, but I only keep what I need. And that really helps reduce the amount that I have to prep and reduce the wasted prep that normally in the past I would have had. That I think that's a fantastic answer because like most new DMS, they're told over and over again, you don't need that much to play. Don't worry about, you don't need to over-prepare. But they don't know what they need to prepare. And it's mm-hmm. different for yeah. each table. And so I think playing the game, that's what you get better at as a DM, is realizing what you need, what you don't need to make encounters shine. I'm a big fan of optimizing DM prep and even better, like, what you have at the table to play. There's a picture that Mike Morales posted on Twitter, I think last year, of him DMing a game. And his DM screen was uh, these tables. I, I think they're in the DMG but I can't find them. Um, and it has the monster health by level for like from like one CRR, one quarter to 30, I think. Um, how much damage they would do and something else, like special abilities. And so at any time, you can just look at your table and say, okay, it should be about this level. This is how much damage and health it should have. And then you don't even need to open your monster manual. You just look and you go. And I, I think that tool would be more useful in the hands of an experienced GM. Like if you're starting out, that yeah. would make a lot of sense. But um, I want that DM screen. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, yeah. that's I want that. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> it's all you need. I'll find a tweet and we'll, uh, we'll find a table. So a final thing to that I uh, would be remiss to not mention uh, is social encounters um, and how these can be made exceptional. Oftentimes we think encounters, we think combat, but like the social pillar of encounters can be incredible. Um, so what are some tips that you guys have for running social encounters, how to make them more interesting, how to make them more um, severe, like give them consequences? Like what are some tips you guys have? Ooh. So um, the first one that comes to mind is I would run it like a skill challenge. Like let's say you're going into a royal court and you're having to make a bid or some kind of um, plea to the person charged for, to get what you want. And you need to just overcome their uh, their disagreements Otherwise, they will get what they want and you won't. Um, so that's one mm-hmm. idea. Um, I'm cu- very curious to hear what Jake would say on this, but David, go. <laughs> Psych! <laughs> I love 
the idea of having ramifications for failing social encounters. Too often, it's I, I try to convince this person to give me this item for free. Uh, well, I fail, and then you just walk away, mm-hmm. and nothing happens. I like the dynamic changing. So let's say you're trying to get this guy to sell you an item for a lower price, and now he distrusts you, or he has his eye on you, or he's told the guards to keep an eye on you because you don't want to pay for this item. Mm-hmm. Or there's there's just some sort of slightly negative response that just changes the interaction rather than you didn't get you ray and or nothing happens um i have a idea for kind of a half-baked homebrew where your characters have a uh, a social damage stat like a weapon stat um, based on your charisma and maybe some other factors <clears throat> and so every social like intelligent humanoid in the game has a certain amount of like social health that you have to overcome if if you were going to convince oh. them of something and and that way you could have the whole party kind of wearing down a person, but then also that person is wearing you down socially, like your social health as well. I don't, so I don't know how it would work, but um, I like the idea of having sort of a resource that you're having to, to maintain. No, oh, that's interesting. I, I think for me, the my advice almost, as much as I am kind of the champion of social encounters, my advice for this almost is for all encounters. Um, it is add a timer. Um, so say you're infiltrating mm. a vampire uh, ceremony and you're you're you know deceptively a vampire maybe you actually are a vampire and somehow you got to finish this before the sun rises okay. or maybe um, there's uh, an encounter where the thieves guild or some some bad entity has set up a bomb like like an orb of destruction that will go off at this certain time and you have to either get the bomb to a place where it can blow up safely or you have to do, somehow disarm it or somehow get rid of that problem. But there's a timer. You can't just say, oh, I need to take a long rest to get my spells back. No, like there is a direct problem. Um, a, another common one is a ritual that's happening. And if enough of these cultists finish that ritual, then they will summon some sort of undead enemy. Um, or mm. some sort of you know demon from the underworld. And so all of those things have timers on them. Um, and so whenever you're looking at a scenario, maybe you're building an encounter and you go, it's good, but I don't know like if there's enough that is urging them to address the problem. Add a timer. Mm. Um, something I did when I finished the the tomb of annihilation was my players were going through it and, in order for them not to, you know, take down an enemy and then take a long rest and then go into the next room, address that puzzle or challenge or trap and then take a long rest, what I did was I had another entire group of bad guys that were basically the evil empire that was coming that wanted to take the tomb for themselves. They were just brute forcing their way with newly made war forged like robots. And they're just brute forcing their way through the tomb behind the adventuring party. So the adventuring party oftentimes couldn't sleep. They couldn't rest. They had to keep pressing on because these things were right on their tails. And it made the Tomb of Annihilation even scarier because they had a timer as well as the standard, you know, crap they had to deal with. So adding a timer can help almost any encounter. Wow. Um, so I haven't had a chance to talk about it in this episode, but I want to uh, talk about my favorite uh, encounter. Most effective encounter was 
there was a portal in um, the plane of mud, you know, one of the elemental planes, <laughs> and it was it was a bunch of portals that opened up underneath the kingdom. So everything is like shifting into this swampy plane. Oh my god! And so everybody is trying to close these portals, and so they had this very cool hero. I think he was like a lieutenant of the mages guild or something. Um, and they had to protect him as he's closing the portal. And there was a timer on it. So I think I, I was counting down from a D6 or something. So in six rounds, it'll be gone. And there's just swarms, like these relentless waves of monsters. And these monsters only have one HP. In every other way, they are a full-blown monster. They deal full damage and everything. But when you roll, if you roll to hit, then they die, period. So it saves a lot of time on rolling damage. And so the players realized that all of their skills were optimized for single-target damage. And so they're swinging like a truck oh. at one little balloon enemy, right? And they pop, but there's like 18 more. And so they were just getting swarmed. And eventually, um, they didn't have and, any and AOE. these things are also, yeah. And these guys, the monsters are also attacking the guy who's closing the portal and he has health and he is dying and he can die. Eventually they, they were able to save him, but he, there were so many enemies between them and like being able to get back into the real world. The portal closed with the hero guy inside of it. And it was just this great moment, oh. and the combat was relentless. Fantastic. That's so great. That's so awesome. I think that that proves a that proves a great example of the whole timer thing. Mm-hmm. You can also flip it and make the timer not be on the bad guys doing something or a bomb going off. Make it about your players surviving a certain amount of rounds until reinforcements arrive, yeah. or making it about like they have to do this thing in a certain amount of time for themselves in order for them to be saved or in order for them to teleport out of there or in order for the ritual to be cast in order to get them to the right plane of existence. Like man, timers help so much. And I think that um, having the mindset of what would an encounter look like if the goal was not to kill the enemy. And then you think of all kinds of different things you can do in that space. Yeah. Or run away or uh, like, yeah, all the things we're talking about. It just, there's so many cool things you can do. And and so often it's not even considered as far as I've seen. Yeah, I'm, I'm even thinking of just like a adventuring party just trying to hide, and they have to hide for six rounds. Oh, like and that would be great. Just have the monster sniffing around and them rolling checks and saying what so, they're doing. It's like um that <laughs> that video game uh, where you're with the alien on the ship and you're just hiding from it the whole time. Or maybe oh, you're alien like, isolation. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking of like Lord of the Rings with the ring race. Yes. Where you're just like, these guys yeah. are just on you and you've got to hide. Just holding they your show breath. Up. And so yeah. you make them like the oh, whole party great. has to succeed like three stealth checks back to back. Yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily fun because it's just like rolling dice, um, but the intensity is awesome. Yes. Yeah. Welcome to Random Table Talk. This is our new segment in which we are going to generate something from random tables. This week we are creating encounters using tables found in the Dungeon Master's Guide and Xanathar's Guide to Everything. All right, uh, hmm, I guess we're teaming up on this. So I will let Jake do the first decision. Would you like an exotic location or a weird location in which to have our encounter? What is the difference? Oh, man. (laughs) They are very different, apparently. (laughs) I'm going to say exotic. Oh, all right. Um, Here we go. David, give me a d20 roll. Uh, 19. Hmm. That gives us <laughs> sealed inside a magic dome of force. Ooh, that's interesting. Whoa, okay, so we know it's... That's cool. I, okay. I, already, it's something I would have literally never thought of. Exactly. All right, <laughs> so uh, we're going to get a contained. monument. It is contained. We're going to get a monument that is like a terrain feature inside of this. Jake, give me a d20 roll. 
Uh, D20, we'll say 17. <laughs> a fountain. All right. Okay. Mm. So it sounds oh, like we're in like an that. urban environment. Yeah. Um, mm. And it's, there's like this magical duel happening. There's a dome around everyone. Um, what see. if the fountain is creating the dome? <laughs> magical artifact. Um, oh, no. Right, I, well, I really like that. Or can we just so go? It's just like a magical fountain. Yeah, let's go with it. So I like the idea of this fountain creating kind of a magical, um, like I imagine a fountain where it like, you know, it shoots up and then it kind of puts down like almost an imitation of what's above. And so it's putting down kind of this dome of the fountain and you look up and the dome is created from this magical fountain. So you got to find some way to maybe plug up the fountain or stop the fountain because <laughs> it's while filling there water. Is, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, while while it's filling up and there's there's got to be some aquatic monsters that are getting stronger as it fills up. Oh, that's great. So maybe there's um, something in the sewer that is crawling out and a mage went to block off this like sewer invasion, but the players were stuck inside and, oh, uh, and there's yeah. also a fountain in there. And now, um, so the sewer is full. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, now we're flooding the dome, and there's really powerful creatures who thrive in water. So you've got a timer in the form of a ticking, like filling, mm-hmm. filling the the dome. And oh, this is this is weird, but good. So I I like this because that? it has the it has the three pillars, right? So the first pillar is exploration, and it's going to be trying to find a way to problem solve a way to plug up the water. The other pillar is combat, where you have your best fighters yeah. just just fighting against whatever these... I'm thinking maybe they're water weirds or water elementals attacking mm-hmm. you. And then the last one is social, where maybe the bard is banging against this invisible mm. wall and is yelling at the mage, trying to convince him to open it up as it's filling with water. And the mage has oh. this kind of moral dilemma of, do I just let them die to stop this, or do I... Open it up. Oh, so and then you can have a three of those at trying once. to counterspell it at the same time. So you oh, kind of take somebody out of the battle, mm. which is also like limiting their resources. In the this is a really good encounter, and I just we just rolled it up. This is great. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that concludes our first ever random table talk. We're going to be doing this pretty regularly, I think. So if you have an idea for some random tables you want us to use. Uh, send them to us at boxercannapodcast at gmail.com. Let's go to the vault. This week's vault question, how do you deal with GM burnout? Hmm. So just quickly, GM burnout is when you're tired of playing D&D and you, your whole game suffers and your players suffer and you don't really want to play anymore. If you, from my experience, if you don't want to play D&D, don't play D&D. <laughs> <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> as, as weird as that sounds, sometimes it's good to take a break. Uh, I think that some of the things that can help, I guess, cure your your GM burnout is getting inspiration. So listening to podcasts or reading blogs that approach D&D in a different way than you have. Uh, maybe playing the game instead of running it. Being yeah. a part of a campaign could be really Ooh, fun yeah. and interesting. Uh, just just kind of experience or even listening to other campaigns like critical role and things like that mm-hmm. that might inspire you to want to run your own game i find that getting hmm. out of the fantasy genre is just incredibly helpful for me um typically i'll go into sci-fi or even uh, the weird west kind of settings 
there's just cool stories there and it makes you think about situations differently than you would in fantasy. Like what happens if everybody has walkie talkies, you know, uh, communication is not an issue anymore or laser guns or shields. Um, it's just, it's a totally different set of problems, even though they're pretty similar in a lot of ways, mechanically to D and D it just opens your brain up to do new things. But also everything David said is really good, especially playing in someone mm-hmm. else's campaign. Nothing will invigorate you and make you realize like what you want to do quite like that. I guess for me, how I deal with GM burnout is um, I don't because I've never felt it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. All right, Sensei. They're like, <laughs> wait, you've never no, I, even I got close. It, I don't think so. But I think wow. what you said, I just have kind of a fairy tale of like great players. And I often think GM burnout, like when you're burnt out from being a dungeon master. I think most of the time it doesn't come from the system or the amount of time you're playing. I think it comes from your table. Mm. And so if you're dealing with a bunch of just jerks or, you know, a, a thief that's pickpocketing, you know, all of his party members or just people who don't get along, that's going to be taxing on you. And I think a lot of burnout doesn't come from the system or the genre or the game. It, it comes from your table. And so maybe you do need to take a break or maybe okay. try a different table. Try just being like, I want to start a new game. Um, maybe play with, I know everyone who's listening has a group of friends that has not played D&D before. Try hosting one session with them. And that would be, you know, maybe a way to break out of that and realize like, oh, there are a bunch of different types of players. And maybe my table's full of players that just might exhaust you. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I actually think that that's a great point is try to identify why you're burnt out what yeah. is yeah what are you frustrated with what is what is tiring you from playing D? are you frustrated with combat do you are you frustrated with your players are you frustrated because you feel like your story isn't going well Th- those are all things that you can identify and help try to fix and trying to adapt and make your game more fun for you to run is going to help you avoid burning out hmm yeah dang absolutely you guys are so wise i love it well that is this week's question vault starting this week uh i want to start reading our favorite five star reviews from itunes and uh here's one i like a lot this is from someone named and also thomas he says five stars thoroughly enjoyable discussion and also pretty accessible for those who haven't played thanks and also thomas this means someone who has not played is listening to our show oh that's yeah Hmm. that's that gotta be doing something right (laughs) that's that's great if you want to have a chance of having your review read on the show uh give us a five-star review on itunes please and thank you thank you for listening to vox arcana episode 15 i'm william i'm jake and i'm david we'll see you next time you can follow us on social media. Our Twitter is at VoxArcanaPod. Facebook and Instagram are at VoxArcanaPodcast. And you can email us your questions, comments, and concerns at VoxArcanaPodcast at gmail.com. You're not weird. Everyone else is. <laughs>